Church Podcast. With your host, Hodgie the Hack. Hello there everyone, it's been a while hasn't it? Uh, <laughs> we are back, this is Hodge on Nodge, episode number 14. There's got to be something amiss, right? If you can go from losing 10 games at the end of a season to another title-winning campaign to just losing again ad infinitum at the start of a new season. That says to me that there are some deep-rooted psychological issues there that have to be dealt with. Now, hello to everyone that is watching. If you are watching, whether it be on Twitter, on YouTube, whatever, please do share the tweet, the stream, and let's get more people in there. Say hello in the comments of whatever device device, whatever uh, platform, there's the word I'm looking for, that you're watching on, and get some questions in for me and my guest today to my left, Mr. Brian Hemmings. Brian is a top sports psychologist, and we'll hear a bit about the work he's done. And the good thing is, he's not an Norwich City fan, because I thought, let's get someone that's not an Norwich who can kind of try and help us pin what these problems might actually be that have us just losing game after game after game. But Brian, thank you very much for joining us. You are in a far more exciting location than me and my rubbish lampshade, I've got to say. I don't think it's more exotic. The sun might be shining a little bit, but I'm not sure about being exotic. Where exactly are you, mate? I'm in, um, I'm in Rice Lip in, um, in West London at the moment. Ah, right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, and so, obviously, I, I've kind of read a bit about the, the work that you do, but you work across a range of sports. And sports psychology is one of those areas that I think if you're involved within the, the football industry or whatever sport it might be, you do know it's, it's one of those things that, that people are, are very cognizant of now. They know a lot about. But I think your average everyday football fan, maybe not so much. So could you explain the role that sports psychologists play and then tell us a bit about the work that you've done in the past? OK, um, well, let's go back one step. First of all, you say I'm not a Norwich City fan and I, and I I'm a Chelsea fan, actually. Um, Nobody's perfect, mate. Nobody's perfect. Um, I went to the Carabao Cup game this week against Villa. It was my eldest daughter's birthday. So, fortunately, she's still going to see Chelsea as a birthday treat. So, I brain <laughs> I brainwashed them successfully. Um, and I was only saying to her that you couldn't conceive how being in this ground now at Stamford Bridge, how different it is from the early 1980s when I used to go as a schoolboy, when they yeah. nearly got relegated to the old third division. Um um, so I, I guess my claim to fame as a Chelsea supporter is if you look at their lowest ever gate, it's something like 6,000 against Orient in midweek in the old Division 2. And I was there. So, so, so you're, not a fair, you're not a fair weather Chelsea fan. You're not a post-Abramovich Chelsea fan. I think that deserves a bit more respect, to be honest. And by the way, I think you've got a chance of the title this year. That's yeah, a blooming I good do, squad that's been I assembled. Too. But to go back to Norwich City, my older brother lives in Norwich. He's lived in Norwich for many years. So I'm a frequent visitor. And I have been to Norwich City uh, to a game before, uh, a long time ago. Um, but as, an, uh, a, but as a, a football football fan, if you like, a, um, someone who's deeply interested in football for all of my life and, and played at a, at a good level, um, I think Norwich City to outsiders is a very popular club. I think it's deemed to be a very community-based club. It's got a nice feel about it. So in in some ways, I do feel an affinity to Norwich. Um, so that's my starting point. 
Well, that's good to know, mate. And um, I, I think I think it's good though that you, you you're not sort of deeply involved in the emotion of it, because I think that's the idea today. Is I want I want to get away from the clouded emotional side of things and kind of get your take on on various issues, various stories around the football club. But I want to do it from a standpoint of perhaps trying to ascertain what are the psychological issues at play here. What what can lead to a team being so successful in the second tier? We've won it the last two times we're in it. And at the moment, we're on course to finish bottom by a distance again, unless something yeah. turns around really quickly. And I think that's the that, that that's the thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around because you look you look at things at football clubs, and it's very, very easy to just look at all of the standard things like formations or team selection or anything like that. But when you actually boil down to it, I mean, as, as a sports journalist, I'm, I can kind of try and cut through all of the all of the noise, all of the, the nonsense surrounding that and kind of drill down into what are the issues at play here. And the only thing that's left for me to actually look at and go, this is the problem right now, because we've tried different formations, tried different teams, tried different approaches, is that there's got to be something psychologically at play here. Now, if you look at just the basics of it, so very successful in the second tier, cataclysmically awful, 15 games on the trot lost in the top tier, regardless of any mitigating circumstances, what's your take on that? Do you think my yeah. sort of assertion that it may be something psychological is probably right? Okay, well, what I'd say first of all, you, you, I'll come back to the first question about, about sports psychologists and what they do. Um, I've been um, working professionally since the early 1990s. Um, uh, in essence, sports psychology is, is, is a, like a performance psychology. So in other words, in terms of working with um, uh, sportsmen and women at whatever level, typically I work at a kind of a professional elite level, is, is about performance principles and how can we help performers in terms of their thinking and behaviour in terms of getting the best out of themselves. We know um, uh, at elite level they're playing for huge, pri huge prizes. Um, um, there's a lot at stake, and and there's a lot of pressures. And and in in more recent years, of course, the mental health status of of um, elite athletes across a range of Olympic sports, professional sports, has come more into focus. So that's more of a emphasis now in sports psychologist work is 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 kind of well being and mental health. But mm. my work has typically been about performance and how can you help players? Um, so, so who have you kind of worked with and stuff? Uh, Give us a well, bit of a flavour of that. Name well, drop um, a wee bit if you want. Uh, no, no, that, that's not really my style. But um, uh, I've worked across a multiple multiple sports. Um, when I first qualified, um, I worked in um, Olympic boxing, so I worked with England and GB squads. From about the uh, from about the early '90s, right through to the end of the Sydney Olympics, um, I've also worked a lot in golf. I mean, that's probably where, if you search me on the internet, most of my um, reputation will come in golf. I was the lead psychologist to England golf for 17 years. Um, so these are uh, the up-and-coming professional players. So in terms of the current crop. It will be people like Danny Willett, um, Chris Woods, wow. um, Andrew Johnston, um, Tyrrell Hatton. Um, and you, you supported them as, as players coming through the ranks, being Eng England boy internationals. Through, um, another notable one would be someone like Tommy Fleetwood. 
Um, but, uh, to, like to, Tommy's to, game. And by the way, quite fitting that I speak to you in the first day of the Ryder uh, Cup. Yeah, yeah. So go, golf, and then I've worked with um, um, professional. I, I work with England women's golf as well. So now work uh, professionally with players across um, um, the various European tours. Really, um, I've also worked in cricket for um, since the since the mid nineties. Um, again, uh, different different game from football, but in, in in a sense, you're still working with professional athletes where they're. Their careers are on the line. They're on short-term contracts. They're in in, in yeah. essence, they're always they're always under pressure, um, and, and different pressures depending on the sport as well. Because obviously, footballers at Premier League level, to be honest, the financial imperatives maybe not there compared to other sports. But there are different pressures, different levels of scrutiny as well compared yeah. to say maybe a, a county cricket player, for example. Yeah, and I've always found that actually it's quite it's quite relative. It's it's the pressures, uh, you know, um, of of taking a penalty in saying Premier League football, that the, the thought process that that player might go through, or the pressures they're under, is actually quite a similar experience to when a, a, a player taking a penalty at a lower a lower league level. You know, we're, we're all human beings. We all have a brain. So the the pressure one experiences is is relative to oneself. So it's it's actually you're, you're going through a same process. So mm. so. Um, Cricket, um, cricket, golf, and I've also done a lot of work in motorsport um, up to Formula up to Formula One level. Not not currently, wow. um, but I'm currently working in, in world endurance car racing as well. So uh, across a, break, a range of sports, really. The only really example I, I worked with a couple of individual footballers years back, and in the late '90s worked with the Premier League officials for a short time as well. In terms of okay. referees being under in, in, intense pressure, absolutely um, they are. Almost, almost at that time, I felt it was kind of working with people under a siege mentality. The, the, you know, receiving death threats and things like that. And of course, we can't wow. perceive, we can't conceive that as, you know, in our own lives of, of and our and, and yeah, as, ang- as angry as you get a VAR decision, death yeah. threats. I mean, it's yeah. it's ridiculous that people resort to these things. And of course, you're working with people then who are experiencing some, uh, some pretty tough, pretty tough stuff on a on a daily basis. Um, I think the thing is with sport is is working with people at that league level is is there's always that public evaluation. You know, if if you work in an office job or whatever, if you have a bad day, you can you can pretty much hide it. Aye, that's right. But but the aspect of public performance is there's there's always you're always in your 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 results, your scores if you're a golfer, your averages if you're a cricketer. That it's always in the public domain, and that, and that's. That's something that I think psychologists help players with, and as you say, in 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 today's today's game in football, um, I don't know what this I don't know what the situation is at Norwich, but but I'd be pretty sure they've got somebody working with them um, uh, uh, in terms of their psychological. Oh support. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the setup at Norwich is really strong, so it would be it would strike me as frankly remarkable. Yeah. As I said, as I said to you, um, Stu, when I agreed to do this, it's professionally difficult sometimes to come on to these and give a, give a view without coming across as critical because I don't know the inside information. But but going back to your point as well about um, is it psychological? Well, 
it's always psycho there's always some ele ele yeah. element of psychology because so when they were doing really well there's some element of psychology because we've all got brains you don't cut off your head from your body when you're playing football you're thinking you're making decisions Com uh, confidence can increase or decrease anxiety can increase or decrease so it's as much psychological now as it was as much psychological when Norwich were well comfortably winning the championship last year so um yeah I'm going to I'm going to come back to that because that was my original question. I'm quite interested though. What's the the difference between sort of working with individuals who compete in individual sports like golf, obviously Ryder Cup and Solheim Cup etc exceptions to that, but predominantly an individual sport. Um and individuals who are participating in sports where the focus is really on the team because cricket for example, there's a distinct focus on team and individual. Yeah, right? Yeah. And golf primarily individual. I would say in football is primarily the collective, although there is obviously individual scrutiny as well. So what's what's the kind of difference psychologically there between the, the, the power of the collective mindset, as it were, and also just the, the individuals within that collective, you know? Is it down to like key figures and key personalities? What, what, what kind of governs that? There's so many questions there. <laughs> I could, we could spend all day answering that. Look, there are clearly there's always individual differences. People have different personalities. Uh, we're wired differently. We're, 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 our environments, how we're brought up are different. So you're always working with different individuals. So sometimes when I do presentations, I show a picture of an England golf team I worked with. And I say, look, they're all wearing the same blazer. They're all wearing the same tie. They all look the same. But I can tell you every single one of those players thought about golf, prepared for golf, dealt with adversity, they all deal with it in different ways. So the first thing is, is that whether you're working with a player, an individual or a team sport, mm -hmm. they will all think and act differently. There'll be some similarities, for example, but they, but, but you, you have to work at an individual level to find out kind of what's the narrative behind that person. And essentially, I guess there's two prongs to it, is when you're working with individuals or individuals within teams, it's about their own performance. You're talking about what I've got control over, what they haven't got control over. Because often you find that players uh, worry, get anxious, or spend a lot of thinking time on things that are out, no, not under their control. So, for mm -hmm. instance, in, in football or cricket, it might be selection. Is that yeah. you've, you've got no control over that. No matter what you do, whether you play well or not well, you can't control whether you're selected or not. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair uh, point. You, you, can't, you can't control what the opposition what the opposition does you might be able to try and influence it but you mm -hmm. can't control you can't control who's selected for their team you can't control the weather you can't control pitch conditions all all, all those sorts of things and the other thing is 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 not focusing on outcomes outcomes are out of your control whether you win or lose games um, but performance is within your control yeah so and more about processes about what yeah. in your performance have you got more control over in terms of your preparation, in terms of your thinking, um, in terms of maybe how you react to mistakes. Um, so there's that side of it, in, whether you're working with individuals or teams, that stays the same. But of mm -hmm. course, when you work with teams, there's also the aspect of, uh, uh, of working with the team as a whole in terms of their, if you like, their cohesiveness. Yep. So I've done various work with, with as I said, within cricket, and um, within golf, because sometimes with England, we were working, although it was an individual events, like the Ryder Cup, we were playing at team events. 
So there were individual performances, but there was also foursomes and four balls where it, it, it added to a collective. The, the performance of England as a whole was not just dependent on them as individuals, it was dependent on them as a team. So I guess what a psychologist would sometimes there's, there's there'd be like the, there would be like social cohesiveness of you know how do the players get on as a group, but then there's task cohesiveness is 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 how effective do the group come together to complete a task, and I think what you're referring to now with Norwich is very much in the supporters' mind is is how are they performing at the task at hand at the moment, mm. and of course. There's going to be lots of things that come into that in terms of, again, in terms of leadership. It will be, as you said, it will be tactical. Um, the psychological element is, again, it's hard to say what's going on within the camp. But my sense at the moment would be, and I, you know, I said I was following, I did see a quote from Daniel Fark saying, I think after the Watford game, he said, you know, essentially we're only three points behind where we thought we'd be. Yeah. And a skill in psychology, and it's cliched, and it's a bit cheesy, really, but the controllability aspect of it is is take each game as it comes. And that's mm-hmm. what you're trying to do with teams and individuals, is just to... Is, to, is what's, what's ever happened with Norwich now is the first, uh, the first five games have gone. Hmm. And what yeah. you're trying to and what you're trying to do is and, and I said it's cliched, but the the skill of the best players I've ever worked with across sports is that ability to what's gone before is history. Whether it's whether it's good or yeah, bad, fo- it's, focus it's, on the moment. It's, it's it, and, not and about it's, yeah, 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 and it's history, and that and it's very difficult to treat. You know, it's 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 cliched. It sounds a bit cheesy, and it sounds simplistic, but it's actually one of the hardest things to do. Yeah, uh, I think, no, um, no, no, absolutely. I, I, I think, think I think Mourinho, you know, being a Chelsea fan, one of the Mourinho's quotes when he was at Chelsea said something like, "If you if, if you want to do history, go to a museum." <laughs> you know, you've got to focus on on now. And I and I think it's a bit, you know, it's it's easy to pick up as the media do on Fark and saying, "Well, you know, we lost the ten games of last uh, of of last uh, the last time we were in." You know, we lost the. You know, it's almost. I think you've got to separate yourself from the, what happened previously. That's gone. That's that's history. And and it's these these five games now. That's the most. That's the most. That's that's what's meaningful. And I, and I really feel. And I think other football supporters think this too. I think Nor- Norwich. About, I was talking to my elder brother last night. He's actually a Crystal Palace season ticket holder, and he said, you know, Norwich have been dealt a, a really. I won't swear because you'll have to bleep it out. But they've been given a really difficult hand oh they and have if you look right? at their, if you look at their first set of first four set of fixtures um there was, there was a lot of talk about that before it and obviously during it and, 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 I, think I, and I think that because the far what you alluded to right i, I think yeah. it was because the first winnable game you look at is the waterford game but it's now yeah. that the alarm bells are truly starting yeah. to ring for a yeah, lot of supporters because they're looking at it and they're going right that 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 was our chance to sort of lay down a marker say you know what we're here we're at the party and norwich city did not do that and yeah, i i i really agree with you there but then again from a psychologist's point of view, Stu, mm-hmm. it, it's about that's one game. Yes. However, right, just to j- j- just to throw a stat in there, Daniel Farker has now lost his last fifteen Premier League games. Yeah. That's the yeah. longest losing run 
by one single manager in English top flight history since football yeah. began in 1992, of course. Yeah, and, but, and I, think, I, I think that's, you know... You... That's telling, though. Working, that, that, that's with, telling for me, you, especially, I, I, and it's the contrast, mate. It's the yeah, contrast you, between success and failure. Yeah, and, and that's really... And you, you bring up some interesting um, things about success and failure, is that we, not just in sport, but in life, we think of things, people think of things in very binary terms. You either do or you don't. Success and failure is win or loss. Yep. And actually, sometimes, and people will necessarily disagree with me, but sometimes loss isn't failure. Sometimes mm -hmm. you can lose and actually perform really, really well, do all your things under your control, and you lose to a better side. Mm -hmm. I think is Alex Ferguson that, said something along the lines of losing is part of the process of winning or, that, or worse this, to that I, effect. I, I remember working, I remember a, 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 a player once saying to me that he didn't lose, he was beaten. Mm. And to him, there was a distinction. A lose is I've kind of given that away. I haven't performed my best. Beaten is I've, I've laid everything I can out there. I've done the best I can and I, have, I, haven't, I haven't come out. So I think... It, 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 it's unhelpful um, for Norwich supporters to, and they, the, the press have picked up on it because that's their job is to, to to highlight things and bring stats. But I think it's it's harsh. I think when you work with professional people, uh, sports people, what they find really hard is the is the sometimes the fickleness of supporters is that you don't become mm -hmm. a bad player overnight. You don't become a bad manager overnight. You might lose a little bit of form. Mm -hmm. But you don't come from a championship-winning manager to all of a sudden being clueless. And that's it. This is this is the nitty-gritty of it, though, right? Because last time, you can point to the Norwich City squad, last time we were up, there was, like, COVID-closed football behind closed doors, no Carroll Road to G the players up, a squad that wasn't really armed for the Premier League. But this time around, Norwich City do have a squad that is capable of competing in the Premier League. Yeah. Yet, yeah. time and time again, we seem to be capitulating. And I'm going to focus on the, the defenders specifically in, in a different question. But what can happen, right? Because there, so much is made in football of a winning mentality, right? It's one of the biggest cliches that's trotted out in the game. But there is it's a cliche for a reason, because winning is a habit. Right, it's a habitual thing that you get used to doing, and part of setting high standards as a football club is getting into that winning mentality. Norwich City do not have that problem in the Championship. Mm. When Norwich City get to the Premier League, there is a losing mentality now, and I would anyone that would refute that, I would argue with, because I think if you look at that Watford game, that was the the one chance to sort of bury those ghosts. And I know you could say, oh, don't judge it by one game, but I'm not. I'm judging it by the first five, and then I'm judging it by the one you look at. And Arsenal are, you can get points against Arsenal now. They're not the team they were. Mm. And at Carroll Road, feasibly, Norwich City should have a chance against anyone or, or anyone but the, the, the real sort of biggest teams, I would say. But you look at that Watford game and you think it's a chance to win. But it's not just the nature. It's, sorry, it's not just the defeat itself. It's the nature of the defeat. And as I say, that feeling of a losing mentality, because... That And by the way, that goes beyond the football team itself. It goes beyond the football team, beyond Daniel Farker. Almost transcends the club as a whole because the supporters in the stands now have, I wouldn't say embraced, but it's almost like that losing mentality has seeped into them. Mm. So that losing mentality is now a club-wide thing. So how can you go from a winning mentality in the second tier, right, 
to going back into the top tier with a better team than you've had in a long, long time squad-wise. And all of a sudden, yeah, and you did mention quite rightly, the fixtures were difficult. It wasn't the easiest hand to be dealt. But that kind of played into our favour a wee bit, as I've alluded to as well, because of the COVID-disrupted pre-season. Getting some of the more difficult games out the way first was kind of good in in a sort of converse way. But that Watford game, you look at it and you go, how how has it got to this point that we have a losing mentality around the football club? And how can it flip so quickly? Because Norwich actually did the same thing in reverse last season because they went down from losing their last 10 league games, flipped it immediately in the second tier and got back to a winning mentality right away. And then they're back into the Premier League and it's flipped again back to the losing mentality. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. How, how can that, how can it be so, I mean, you talk about fans being fickle, how, how can it be so fickle almost within the dressing room that the psychology yeah. can just turn? Well, again, I can't comment, comment on what's happening within the uh, within the dressing room. Uh, I remember once getting interviewed many years ago about, um, about Barry Fry. At throwing, you know, having to lock in his players in the dressing room after a game for a few hours and flying teacups and things like that. And whether that worked for some or not, I, I, I don't think know. that would be tip of the iceberg with Barry Fry. But, it could be tables, mate. But, um, look, there's so many avenues I could take your questions and your comments there, Stuart. It's, I think, Go first me, of all, you've got free oh, reign. Right. You, you, you have Paul, you're Paul Scholes <laughs> with the ball. You have a free oh, reign to do what you want. Okay. Well, first of all, I'd say, I talked about controllability and I said about you can't control the out the, the, who you play against. Now, clearly, the quality of the opposition they're facing now in the Premier League is very, very different to what they're facing on a weekly basis in the Championship. So the likelihood, a lot of sports like I, it's also, I'm not, it's that sort of cliched about positive thinking. I think that's an absolute nonsense. Most of the time, I'm trying to get people to think what I'd call neutrally and based on realism. Not a false. So this idea of winning mentality, I think, is uh, is false. To the idea of Norwich City players will go out with a winning mentality, I would say a better mentality for them would be a, what I'd call a competitive mentality. So I'm going to go out and compete, and compete the best I can, and whatever I like, that involves. I like that qualifier in, there. That's an important in, distinction in, in, in term in terms of the specific specific role they've got within the team and as a collective that we go out and compete. And I think if you looked at, let, let's say, if we if we rewind back to the summer, and I know you're a Scots Jew, but watching England play, England play and Southgate, they were very, very cautious about expectations winning. And, and if you looked at the psychological messages that were putting out, it was about going out and competing. And with competing with this set of players and, and sticking to a process. But even if the process wasn't particularly necessarily sometimes that good to watch, mm-hmm. it was a process that might would, would probably best give that that set of chance sorry that set of players the best chance of success in terms of winning a tournament so i think a better a better way for norwich is and, and supporters is it's not that they, the players necessarily won't have a winning mentality it'll be more of a competitive mentality i'll give you a couple of examples of this is one of one of myself um and and one of uh, when i faced a similar situation in working with a team who, who I would say, it's not the same sport, but a very similar psychological position to what Norwich are finding themselves. Firstly, I, I was a pretty decent footballer. Um, I played in the FA Cup. I always qualify that by joking and, by joking and saying it was the first qualifying round. But I did, <laughs> right. 
but I did play. We got we got beat six two as well. But I can say my claim to fame to my children is I played in the FA Cup. Um, but I remember as a player once um, I was playing at university. We were in a this is in the um, early nineties Unijet Sussex League, and I was playing in a team that was bottom of the league. We were a good side. We were bottom of the league. We were pretty good defensively, but we just couldn't score goals. And, and there were always a fear that as soon as we conceded a goal, where the hell was going to go to come from? And that's, I guess, in terms of looking at Leicester, looking looking forward, it's more is, I would be thinking with the team is, where do they think their goals are coming from? Yeah. That would be a, that would be a concern. Yeah, um, uh, the, the, I think a lot of people share that. 46% of our Premier League goals in the last two seasons have been scored by one finished striker alone. So that's a concern. Yeah. So so I'd say, look at, I mean, look at, again, looking at things that you've got control over and looking at a process, scoring goals is, is where Norwich are at, I think, in terms of they've got to find a way of scoring goals. Yeah. And that's part of the process. The second, the process, second one... Yeah, oh, sorry, Ony. The second one would be my experiences working as a psychologist with a team that had comfortably won the division below. They got promoted, the, the, the same sort of side, and then they went into the top division and they were getting absolutely thrashed week on week. The players got very demoralised very, very quickly. But what, what makes it more demoralising for players is when the media and everyone kicks in and really stick the boot in. Because if you think of players, and if you say you're a Norwich City supporter, and I'm really passionate about this, is if you're a supporter, that means it doesn't mean you, you're not critical or you can't have a view, but the idea is you support your team. And I, and I did read about there was some booze at the Watford game and maybe that was kind of, oh, you know, it's Watford at home and this is the chance where we, we start to, to, to get some positive momentum. I think in terms of the psychology of players, that's where, that's where you need to really feel the support of your, your home support because otherwise then it does become very difficult psychologically. In terms of working with a team at that point, I remember quite clearly trying to help the coach in terms of, and, and again, it's cliche, it's not taking the positives, but it's almost like, look, what in our processes are we doing? What have we got control over that we can, that we're doing well, that we can improve upon? And really getting a collective of the team in terms of their ideas and their input in terms of, okay, we can't control the result, but we can do X, Y, Z. We're doing X, Y, Z well. What can we do better? And the idea of it is if we follow that, if we follow those processes, small as though they, they may be, we've got some control over that. And if we do that, then we can, we've got a better chance of getting the outcomes we want, coupled with let's just take it one game at a time, one, one half at a time. Because I, I do believe in psychological momentum and at the moment Norwich are in what you'd what I'd kind of if, if you looked at the psychological literature you'd say they're in negative momentum but it only takes it only takes passages of play to shift that momentum so one one good half can 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 change that momentum that a team that a team faces 
and, and I do. I think Indeed, they, within you know, the they, team, and I, I think within the fans as well, that's true, isn't it? Because because a, a positive half, even if it's you go in nil nil, and the fans are g'd right up for the second half to do what you're saying there. Yeah, I saw. I mean, I, you know, again, I, I said from recent experience I, when I go to football, I sense that in the crowds I'm in, you sense how the, the there's shifts in momentum and 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 how that impacts on the play on the pitch. So I, I, I would say is look at context. Don't look at the. I know it's easy to look at the the record of the last of ten and then what's happened. There, but sport moves on. You've won the championship. You move on. It, I'm sure statistically, that first season of coming out of a championship and trying to retain your Premier League status. That's the key. That's the key. The key year. Absolutely. Yeah. And by and, the way, and, it's and, becoming harder and harder. And, on and harder and harder. Can I quickly I say, by the way, in terms of the crowd, there's a good crowd assembling behind you. Are you next to a school or something? <laughs> oh, can you, can you, can you, do you want me to move, Stuart? No, 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 you're fine. It's just, it's quite funny. Right. We're talking about a crowd and then I'm hearing loads of noise behind yeah. you. And I'm thinking, that's, that's the kind of noise we need at Carrow Road, you know? Yeah. I can assure you, they're not my cheerleaders in the background. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it's it's, and I read, you know, about stats. I read something I think in yesterday's paper. It astonished me really, although it wasn't surprising. Since two thousand and three or four, only seven teams have finished in the top four in the Premiership, the the so-called big six. Although you'd argue whether they are the big six now, and Leicester. And I mean, yeah, that's in seven, I mean to be seven, honest, that's why I think the league's pretty much not yeah, for purpose so, anymore. And I often, and again with players, the realism is, and, and again, there's leagues within leagues. You know, mm-hmm. in motorsport, particularly, I mean, you know, I've worked in motorsport since the early 90s and exactly the same things in, happens in Formula One. There's races within races. There's, there's some, yep. you know, there's, there's only a certain amount of teams, uh, drivers are going to finish in the top four. You no, occasionally absolutely, absolutely get this, you, you occasionally get this road result, but essentially there's races and, and it happens in professional sport more and more now because of finance is... Mm-hmm. There's league within leagues, and I think Daniel Fark and, and his support staff will be focusing on leagues within leagues. Is is what's realism for them, and that's not not having a winning mentality. That's realism, and because and, and in terms of goals, then players see that as achievable. Yeah, no, no, you, granted, and that's controllables. And by the way, yeah. so you were saying about process, right? I don't imagine in terms of process that they're doing all, all that much differently in terms of what was winning the league a tier down to what they're doing now. My question to you, though, is it's very, very easy to talk about remaining focused on the the half, the portion of the half, the game or, or the sequence of games, whatever whatever way you want to break it down or how big the chunk is, right? But how easy is it to make sure that those in the dressing room aren't taking account of the outside factors? I mean, the crowd's yeah. a kind of unavoidable one because that's right there with yeah, you. Yeah. So if the crowd are negative, then that, that, that's that's a given. And to be honest, Norwich fans, for the most part, I think have been pretty supportive. Uh, and I think will probably, for the most part, continue to be. But I also think there's a right place to air your... You're quite right to air your grievances after the game, for example, in that Watford game, when, when the result is just, frankly, unacceptable. Leagues within leagues and all that. But how easy is it to keep that collective, especially when when this negativity, this negative momentum, I love that yeah. term, is seeping in. How easy is it to keep that collective focused on these smaller chunks where you can control the process? We talked earlier on, Stuart, about individual differences. My experience with players across sports, whether it be drivers, golfers, cricketers, so on, 
you get a lot of individual difference in terms of that ability to block out those external influences really and yeah some players do it better some players do it better than others but i also think is in terms of leadership some of the coaches i've worked under in different some coaches are also very good at blocking out external influences mm. um so um what's happening in terms of norwich city i'm 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 not sure um it, it's as i said i think it can be tough because it can be demoralizing yep but but essentially i think psychologically again what you're trying to do is to say okay that's gone what did we do well what needs to improve and that sounds very simplistic but that's all they've got control over hmm. and it was so, obviously uh, frustrating you know, so for managers as well so, by the way when, so we, when so you lose a, a man psychologi- a corner yeah <laughs> so, so psychologists would probably talk would, would be would be if they if got access to a team it would be verbalizing those things what are the external influences what are people saying what are things and and to have that in a very open um open forum that yeah we are aware of this and remember sometimes that sometimes um in sport that can that can i I mentioned sort of siege mentality before when i was talking about referees and sometimes in sport when you get teams who are really up against it and they feel they're being criticised, sometimes that siege mentality is is helpful. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of forges an us against them. It, it, it focuses very much in sales. Well, well I, 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 can't, I can't please them no matter what I do. Um, we're going to get it in the neck anyway. Let's just, let's just uh, you know, kind of we'll show them. I, th- I think there's a danger, and by the way, I'm not sure if you were aware of Daniel Farker's press conference going into the Watford game. It was very much sort of saying we need to get behind the team, you know, and and basically saying that you, you can't really criticise certain players unfairly because it's, it's not going to help them. And I think, to be honest, fans have the right to criticise a player if they want to and criticise a team selection, whatever they want to do anyway, as long as they support them when they're, when they're kind of getting on that pitch. But I think there's a real, real danger of, I mean, you're talking about that siege mentality, but Alex Ferguson, who was the, the, the kind of architect of, or at least the the, per, the person who disseminated over a kind of a widespread thing in football, one of the things that he always kept in his back pocket in his armory was the crowd on Manchester United's side in that successful sort of era that he had at Manchester United. If there begins to become a big disconnect between what the crowd are thinking and what the coaching staff and, and, and the, the players themselves are thinking, then that's that's a recipe for disaster. And to be honest, for managerial change. I don't think we're at that stage yet, but I think I think at the moment this is a real crunch point for that Norwich City team. And yeah uh, sorry, were you gonna come in there? No, I would I would say I would hope not. I think um you really wonder what managerial change would achieve with, with Norwich at the moment. Again, you don't become a bad manager at night. They've had a no. again. I repeat, they've had a. I think they've had a tough hand early on. We're really looking at, you know, they played. They played three of the top five from last year. Lost narrowly at Arsenal. Lost narrowly at home to Leicester. The Watford game stands out, but I would say, in, in my sense, in my sense, it would be. It, they've had one bad game, and what mm. on a minute they've had one bad game. I, 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 mean, don't, I don't, I don't Arsenal, think if you watch the performances, that's that's not true. Okay, uh, especially okay, but, if you include cup games, and and one the one thing, sorry, I was going to throw at you earlier. 
is there a particular cognitive profile that is stronger at dealing with these kind of things? Um, no, I guess um, I, guess, I guess in terms of personality, some some players might be um, uh, more more prone to kind of anxiety or um, more hardy in terms of their uh, more robust in, or more resilient in terms of their outlook. And I guess that will, of course, be affected by their experience as well. So if you've got younger players, they might find a kind of, a, I guess, a negative crowd reaction harder to deal with. Again, and, until you're working with players, you don't know what those profiles might be. But essentially, a, a psychologist would be looking at more at developing skills. So raising self-awareness and then trying to help mm -hmm. them develop skills in terms of maybe reframing how they're thinking about certain situations or managing managing stress in the moment so I, I i guess an example would have been in um uh you know you look, you looked at england taking penalties in the european yeah. you could you could definitely see i mean there's loads of research now this guy gears or gears or day in norway who's done a lot on penalty taking mm -hmm. looking at um uh, behave behaviors of successful penalty kick takers in European football over the last 20 years. And he's identified a number of, of behaviours that, that that people taking penalties, repeat myself, that uh, contributed to success. And so you could see, I could see certainly in terms of the, the pre-kick pre or pre-shot behaviours of England players this year was very different from what you've seen in previous tournaments. Now, I know they weren't successful, but you could see that there was a difference there. So psychology would be aimed at providing cognitive type or thinking type skills we've mentioned kind of goals um it would be maybe things like breathing um, or, um uh, mindful or grounding techniques in terms of trying to keep uh, ways of keeping them in the present and trying to block out distractions too i mean um you, you can see in, in football we've, we're talking mainly about about the influence of the crowd um Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I have seen instances in some of the sports I've worked with where crowds get on certain players' back, and it and it's unhelpful. You know, if yeah. you, you know, it, it, I can understand supporters and frustrations, but it's, I think it, it's, uh, it's what Norwich City supporters have got control over themselves at the moment. They they can decide they can decide as Fox saying they can decide whether to really get behind a team, or or they can perhaps make it more difficult for the team they support. Granted, now the I mean the key thing about football is it's such an emotionally driven sport. Now that's for the supporter and for the, for for the people involved, the protagonists within the game as well, and that manifests in a lot of ways. So defenders getting nervous and hacking it away. Strikers missing chances because of a lack of composure if they're if they're in a run and not getting goals. Whereas you see it so often, strikers get goals in gluts and then kind of dry spells. It very seldom tends to be even if they average one goal every three games, it doesn't come every three games, you know. And and that's that that's the way that these things go. For the manager, for example, Daniel Farker, um, or head coach to give him his, his proper title. If you look at him the other night, he came out and he had what I think was a reaction governed by emotion. Now, the yeah. press conference that I mentioned pre-Watford game was, I think, I think that was something he's going in and he's thinking, right, this is the way that I'm going to go about it. This is what I'm going to do. 
uh, and he was doing it to to try and provoke a reaction from the team, a reaction from the crowd, all of that kind of stuff. And I think, to be honest, it worked in, in some ways what he was trying to do with that. Whereas when he came out the other night and described it as a big mistake and basically pretty much went after a, a teenager who's recently arrived from another country, country in Christos Jolis, um, which, by the way, quick plug, if you want to learn everything about Christos Jolis, uh, I've got a really good podcast on that. You can just go back in the order a wee bit um, and, and find out about that. But he, he, be, he went after a young lad. And what I'm thinking to myself is, A, is that young lad strong enough to deal with that kind of criticism, number one? And number two, what does it say that Daniel Fark is now getting to the stage where he's doing his post-match press conference and emotion is perhaps driving what he's saying rather than something a bit more calm and calculated and designed mm-hmm. to provoke a specific response and press specific buttons. So what what do you think about that? Do you think if emotion's beginning to take over, then perhaps the control that you're talking about is is meandering a little? Yeah, I think you're right. You know, football, sport is emotive. Um, and I think it's it's difficult for managers or coaches to come out and face the the press and the media immediately after games i think you know there's a there's a reason why uh, coaches aren't allowed into the referees room till 30 minutes after play and that's is because they know things can be pretty heated things can be said people can not be in they're not being control of themselves because of heightened emotions anger frustration whatever um I think it's a particular skill coaches trying to manage themselves and some are better mm-hmm. than others in terms of um, being very careful about what they say mm-hmm. afterwards and without later regretting some of those things. Um, Indeed. The, the point about about targeting specific players or being critical, my experiences of coaches have been they're very selective about who they do that with. So I would yeah. say if they know a player and they know a their player can can deal with that, then something being said in the press or, or media, they know that, that that might drive the player on to improve. They also that, know that's that, what we've got, they, who, they, got, so got they, to so, hope. So they or they or, or if they wouldn't choose to do that necessarily with the player they they felt wasn't in a good place, or maybe wouldn't be able to to handle that sort of public criticism. So why is doing that? I'm not sure. That's my personal experience of coaches in the past has been when asked about players or when they come out and publicly criticise something, they're doing it because they want to sometimes provoke a response. And but they generally feel that that player that would be a good strategy for that player. They wouldn't necessarily do that if the player was as inexperienced or they felt that that would, that would damage their confidence even further. Now, the proof but, is but, going to so, be in the pudding, Brian, because the thing with Christos Jolis is, right, if he goes on, and now I think he's of a magnificent calibre and could have a fantastic season, which if Norwich City get relegated, sees him snapped up by another English team because I do think he is a, a potentially world-class player based on, on on the sort of various bits of research I've done on him and the little flashes we've seen so far in his, his Norwich City career, penalty miss or not. Now, 
my my thinking is if Daniel Fark has come out and even if emotion has driven it, if he feels that that young man is of a mindset that that is going to make him better and and strive mm. to be of an even higher level, then great. Mm. But if not, there's a danger that he's come out with an emotional reaction. That kid goes, do you know what? The manager's peed me off with these comments. Mm. And what you could have done is you could have killed like a, a real bit of promise in a young yeah. player very, very early in his Norwich City career. So yeah. that, that feels to me like a pivotal press conference, depending on the way it goes. Yeah, and I think that's right. I think he's, he's, you find as a psychologist or as a coach, a, a big aspect which people don't see, you know, we, we've talked about goals and processes and outcomes and controllability and so on. But at a, a fundamental level, whether it be a, 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 whether it's coach and player, psychologist and player, whatever, generally successful people are very good at building professional relationships, ones that are based on trust and rapport. So mm -hmm. the interventions that I sort of talk about or, or a, a coach's effectiveness with a player isn't really about techniques or strategies. It's based upon the fundamental rapport and respect, respect and trust between player and coach or player and psychologist. So what we mm -hmm. don't know in this situation is, does that then go and undermine what you're saying is your concern, your concern may be, is has that public criticism or that emotive reaction then will it will it undermine as well as potentially damaging confidence who remains to be seen will it undermine the relationship between player and coach and mm -hmm. once that once that trust or respect is is broken or damaged sometimes that's very difficult to retrieve yeah, no, I absolutely agree with and, you. And again, so if you look at coaches, again, not necessarily Daniel Fark, because I, I, I don't know. Um, but again, successful um, coaches, managers in football, when you hear players, whether it be past players or current players, when you, when you, when you, when you hear them talking about the manager, they very rarely talk about the strategies or tactical or he was tactically astute actually what they talk about is you know he's playing for the manager so there's something about the rapport and the relationship between the the set of play, that individual player or the set of players and the manager and i think that's what coaches and that's what fark is trying to do he'll be trying to draw upon the good relationship he has with the players from the successful times in terms of last year of that still remains and it, and if you if he can use that relationship in a in a constructive way, then he can still pull the players for, forward in terms of they'll know he's under the cosh too. Hmm. So, yeah, no. Uh, it, I, so I think that's a good point. My, my, sen well. my sense would be the results haven't been good. The last one was particularly damaging. What's really what would be really interesting to me as a psychologist is what's what's the relationship still between the players and the coaches? And and, and again, it sounds cliche but if if they still believe in fark which i think they would they will do is is you, they've got every chance of, of of as i said still having a competitive mentality despite the results it's we can still have that competitive mentality and i think he'll be he'll be emphasizing again what we've we got control over this next is everton away i believe isn't it tomorrow or whatever the weekend is yep what what have we got control over what you know? What can we influence? Let, and and this 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 result will come, and that's where the momentum shift might be. And I think that's where I, I think that's where he'll direct his efforts. Um, and and this is why 
you know, this is Premier League football. They're in the the big. They're in the big league. You're gonna you're gonna get this. You're gonna get this sort of flack, and the that's what the players are gonna have to manage at the moment. But um, yeah. I, I think it'll be it'll be stressing the stressing the the, the the realism. The players will know the realism of where are we looking to where are we looking to finish this year. Realistic, if we talked about success for Norwich this year, success will be perhaps perhaps um, finishing fourth bottom. Yeah, yeah, staying in the divisions of success this and, and, season. And 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 you know, at this point is they've played five games. Yeah, and I think I think it does need uh, that. That is that is a thing that needs stressed. Uh, I, I did see on my Twitter space at the weekend. By the way, there is another Twitter space coming up at three pm today. We mean Michael Bailey after Daniel Farkas press conference, where we'll hear all the best lines from the manager heading into tomorrow's game. But I, I um, sort of said last week that the last two teams who started losing their first five games both stayed up. So that is something that has to be borne in mind while we, we sort of sift through all this negativity. But we're dealing with psychology today. And before we get to the, the questions that everyone sent in, thank you to everyone that has done so at the end. There's one more that I want to sort of try and try and have a dig at with you, Brian. And that is defending specifically, right? So Temu Puki, you could see, by the way, he took his goal. Uh, last week, that that Pookie is one of those players. He's got the short-term memory. If he misses a chance, he scores the next one. And his mental strength is not in question for me. He's an experienced player and has that cold-bloodedness in the penalty box that he will take more chances than he misses usually. And even if he does miss a couple, he's going to come back and score that third one. Temu Pookie, j- just, just to bring a wee bit of positivity to this whole thing, has shown great mental strength there for me. Defensively, though, cataclysmic. And what I'm wondering is, if you look at Grant Hanley and Ben Gibson last season, they had a a history-making partnership in terms of of how frugal they were with attacking teams in terms of letting goals in. And okay, that partnership hasn't been sort of the the basis this season. It's been chopped and changed quite a bit. So personnel could be something you could point to. And I think with the defence in particular, I think partnerships, absolutely vital. Not The two best players don't necessarily make the best defensive partnership for the team. So that is, that is one thing to point out. And I mean that from a tactical perspective. But from a psychological perspective, right? If you look at the game against Liverpool in midweek, you had three defenders in the box and they all seem to be on their heels. So that regardless of the number of bodies that are in the penalty area, behind the ball, defending the goal, that Liverpool player's moving faster and finishing, right? So specifically when it comes to defending, is there particular, a particular sort of like list of, of psychological considerations that, that could be attributed as, as factors and why a defence that was so staunch last season has become so leaky all of a sudden this season. Yeah. Well, that's, I think it's interesting you said, you know, I said I'm not familiar, but when you said chopped and changed, so um, um, consistency in selection, whether that being through injury, whatever, I think um, I think in, 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 in certain positions, then partnerships become really important in terms of knowing 
or understanding what another player is going to do in relation to you at any particular points. And clearly, if you play together frequently and there's been a successful partnership, then if that isn't there, then that does create a professional challenge. That's the first thing. I guess, um, psych- you said psychologically, is there an issue? And I, I, and I don't know, really. I guess what, what a coach... What defensively? Well, a defensive thing, you think, is... is, is, is when you analyse performance, what are you, you, you? A coach would be analysing performance. Is, is are there technical things? Um, are there technical things that are, are at play here? Technical deficiencies, or mm-hmm. are there pos- positional issues, or is it a psychological thing in terms of maybe concentration? So it, it's it, mm. you remember when we first started this talk, Stuart, I said about psychology is always there. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's likely. To me, it sounds like it won't just be a psychological thing. It will be a mixture of all of those things. Yeah. So no, no, I, be... I agree that it can't be one thing over any other. I'm just as specifically, obviously, in this podcast, we're diving into psychology. Yeah. So I would say is is what you'd be doing is you're working with the players and saying, you know, is is they they what I found with working with elite athletes over many years is they're very self aware and they're very you mentioned they they there's very 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 driven towards improving their own performance mm-hmm. because they want to succeed because of maybe um, it's their careers as well they have individual goals as well as team goals so I would imagine that they'd be saying you know if they if they were switching off to put it in sort of layman's terms mm-hmm. or uh, so there were attentional issues there would be. Um, that would be something that could be addressed in terms of what attentional, you know, what, what are the passages of play where you, what, what should you be attending to? Where should be your focus, focus of attention and where is your focus of attention? So you know, sometimes players, um, when they're low in confidence, they can internalize quite a lot when their focus of attention should be external in terms of maybe what the opposition are doing. So that might yeah. be one thing. I, the other thing again that comes to mind though is is you you again this is what happened last year is is they're playing against week in week out now a very different quality of opposition that is so, really true so it, it remains to be seen at the moment is you know do they need more experience or uh, or will will Norwich have to improve their squad in those areas if they're to retain their Premier League status. Yeah, and it's interesting you should make that point. Because um, I think sometimes it's if the players can be very good, but they've not experienced the sort of movement or speed of the types of forward they're they're waiting on. And so sometimes and each initially that step up can be, well hold on, these are playing a certain these are playing a level of football that I'm unaccustomed to. And there's some period of adaptation to that. So when play when coaches talk about learning the lessons of maybe of what opposition do sometimes it, it takes a little bit of time for the coaches to reorganize and players to adapt to that new level of competition so sometimes that improves them as players their their, their mm. difficulties is a is a learning experience in terms of okay well right i can see what i'm doing wrong and through coaching through instruction or perhaps through working with a psychologist they can then see how their game can adapt and improve um that would that, be my take on it. 
that that that's really good. I really like the stuff about players internalizing more if confidence is low. And Ollie Middleton just said um in a comment that Hanley honestly looked rattled against Liverpool. You could tell he was badly in his own head. And I think that is a sign. Now, also, on the point of the quality, we're talking about concentration, right? So a, a half or a quarter second lapse in concentration in the yeah. championship is, I mean, I can't put a percentage on it, but so much less likely to get punished, especially if yeah. you're on top in a game, as Norwich yeah. City are more likely to be than it is if you're under the cosh against world-class opposition, as you are in the Premier League more often than not. So yeah. I think I think those are, are key factors to, to, to determine. I think I'll say, say across sports, I've heard that time and time again, is and that you're giving a sports-specific example of that quarter second. At this level, you get the, the, the striker will take the chance. That at a lower level, they'll miss those amount of things. Uh, the, the strikers, they won't take those chances. In cricket, you hear them saying, just the number of wicket-taking balls you face at a high of it's a, it goes up a level where I, I was working with a, a young player this year and he was, and he's a young cricketer actually. And he's saying, I've mm -hmm. gone up and he's saying, I can see that bad, when I bowl bad balls at a lower level, they don't really get um, uh, taken advantage of. He said, as soon as you bowl a bad ball at this level, it goes for four. Yeah. It's about so he, could, he could see it himself. It was dramatically different. Mm -hmm. A slight drop in his performance was punished in a, in, a, in a much more emphatic way. And, and, and maybe your point there is that's what's happening with Norwich, is that at this level, the slight mistakes that they make or that split-second loss of concentration, whatever it may be, is being punished. There's a chance they'll adapt to that. Mm. No, I think so. Um, one last thing that just occurs to me before I move on to, to questions from the listeners, and that is there's been quite a big turnover for, for the Norwich City squad this summer, which I think was needed in terms of the injection of quality and bringing it up a level in, in that sort of regard. But what's the what's the kind of difference in, in, again, sort of applying the rules of psychology here in terms of adaptation? And Stephen Pass actually had a, a good question earlier on. He says, how do a group of players and coaches go about deciding who the guy is within a new team. Now, rather than the guy, I'm thinking more who the new leaders are and how that comes to the fore. Um, and how long does that, that process kind of tend mm. to take? And how much impact can, can the idea of a, a dressing room sort of leadership clique or, well, not clique suggests that they're external yeah, from yeah, everyone yeah, else, yeah, yeah. but a, a leadership group, like and, and the idea of that sort of gradually coming together, how much impact can the fact that that is in a state of flux rather than having an established set of leaders within your yeah. team, how, what kind of impact do you think that can have, particularly within such a team-oriented sport? Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, uh, I'll try and answer your question as best as I feel I heard it. I think you, you made me think of um, when Sven er Goran Eriksson was manager of England and he talked about um, I think he was working with a psychologist at the time, Willie Raylo, and Willie Raylo talked about what he called cultural architects. Yes, so the same the same terminology has been used uh, around Norwich City in recent yeah, times. Yeah, so it's 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 players who um, exhibit or exude leadership type qualities who, through their behaviours, whether it be eating habits, training habits, and the, I guess at Man United now they're talking about Ronaldo now, aren't they? In that same way, is that. He's Absolutely. having an effect on people. They're looking to see what he's eating and 
whether that's and, true and you were not. talking about winning momentum, right? He's he's like a, a propulsion of that, uh, yeah, just I mean, in one player. Yeah, and, and and of course, some players do that naturally because of they come in with a status or a, a, a kudos because of what they've already achieved in the game. So people naturally look to them because of their 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 standing, their previous successes. That's easy to achieve. Others, actually, I found in sport that you you can find young players that do that as well. That young emerging players, mm-hmm. young emerging players that that seem to exhibit. Uh, 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 a constructive attitude, um, train really, really well, look after themselves, uh, are quite positive around the dressing room. They can become cultural architects just as much as established players. Um, yeah. And my experience with different teams is that they they go different ways about it. Some have, have what you've described as leadership groups. So they, I think um, I was reading this year that Man City have a vote every year in terms of players about who's in their leadership group. And I was reading that Sterling is no longer in that leadership group. He was that, voted that, out that's the... something that Guardiola did at Barcelona, and it's like an so he, he was voted that. out of the he was voted out of the top five. So I think uh, Fernandinho is is listed as is in there. Um, Laporte, uh, Diaz, and so sometimes it's an elective thing. Sometimes it's a more of a what's the right word? More of a, uh, a, a it just naturally they let it naturally evolve. Yeah, it's less tangible and, and, sort and, of thing. Yeah, and, yeah. and again, cap- captaincy, captains, in my experience, have different. Uh, some you know, this is again, it's, it's, it's sort of age old captains, lead by example, or they talk. You know, they're, they're talkers, and and I guess um, I don't know what's going on at Norwich, but I guess what they're looking for is 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 people who've in this sort of situation where you feel up against it, where there's been a number of results not gone your way, or there's been underperformances, people who 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 won't stand for negativity and pessimism and harkening on about the past or finding faults to pick to pick on. There was a, a player I worked with, and again, it's a cricket example, but he said mm-hmm. that season that season I was referring to, it was a cricket example, and I remember having a team meeting and we were going around eliciting people's views and they were pretty demoralised at the time. And I remember the senior player saying, he said, the trouble is with you lot is you're focusing too much on what he called the shit around the edges. Okay. And, and what he meant by was external influences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Apologies, said, by, uh, apologies, by the way, for any of the industrial language. Uh, yeah, I, 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 was, I, was interesting. <laughs> I was interested. I said to somebody the other day, I read somewhere about what's classed as swearing and that what's classed as swearing has changed, but that I never knew bloody was classed as swearing, and I didn't certainly think SHIT was, but I was... it's all right. I've got no problem with it. I've just got to get the disclaimer out there. <laughs> All right, I've given you a quote, and what he was saying was, is that sometimes when things start to not go well, players can easily look for things outside of their control that they can moan about, yeah, that can gripe about. And actually, this player was saying that's all stuff around the edges. That don't really matter. You've got to focus on what we can do here, and that's, and that's what human nature, isn't it? Really, yeah. It's but, that but idea, again, yeah, you focus what... on the wrong things because as, as a result of, yeah, of angst people... and. And people look to blame others. They look to externalise rather than accept responsibility. You know, and that's what you look for players. Is now look for them, even though they're under pressure, to take responsibility, 
take responsibility for what they say and what they do and their actions on a daily basis, not just on match day. Is And th- what this player was saying is, I'm hearing too much. He was leading. He's saying, I'm hearing too much now of all the stuff that's, that's wrong. Hmm. And that's not helpful to us. And, and what, what used got, to happen, what, by the way, what we've as... got to do is what we've got to do is focus on. And again, it's, it, it sounds cliched, but reminding them of that on a daily basis, we're doing we've just got to come in and do this, do this, do this. If we do that, that's that's what, what we can influence at the moment. If we focus mm-hmm. too much on all the other stuff, we're going to fall apart pretty quickly. Yep. And no, that's I... when you, that, that's when you hear of players in, in I guess, in in. Um, in football terms, of when you, they say they've lost the dressing room, exactly that is is that I, when they see when they see a manager who's kind of no longer really focusing on performance, or or they badly misjudged the feelings amongst the players, mm-hmm. or that, that, that the players feel that the, that the way the team is going isn't really going to be successful. So maybe mm-hmm. there'd be favoritism in terms of selection or or, or tactics which they feel aren't, aren't, aren't going to be conducive to. And I, I, Sorry. I see every one of those things you mentioned there as a prevalent danger for Norwich City at the moment. And that's the I think that's the key thing here, is that all, all of these things are now kind of lurking there in a point where you can go, mm, is that maybe going to become an issue? Which I, I think even in the last Premier League season, I don't think we, we ever got to the point where we thought that because it felt like a free hit and the world was turned upside down at the time. So I think everyone was kind of going, right, fair enough. There's mitigation here. Whereas now you look at it and it's like, well, there's nothing other than kind of looking at the players and looking at the manager. Now, one of the points I was going to make, actually, is Norwich City used to do a press conference that had a player and the manager interviewed. Whereas now, in, in more recent years, it's just the manager you hear from. And I kind of wonder to myself right now, would there would there be something in maybe a senior member of the squad coming out and saying, Do you know what, we know this is not good enough. And that would, one, show that the players are feeling a, a sense of accountability mm. about this, rather than all just landing on, on Daniel Farker's head. And secondly, it might take a bit of the pressure off the manager because people are actually sort of hearing from within the camp that, you know what, this this isn't just the manager's fault, you know, it's, it's, it's about the players as well. But yeah. um, I'm, I'm, I'm yes. going to go on to questions, mate, because we have, unless you have something to add there quickly. No, I, I don't know what the reason for that change in communication would be. I, I would think... Uh, it's, just, it's just club policy, mate. Yeah, um, uh, but, I, you know, I think, you know, supporters, what's really, really important, we've talked a lot about communication. I think it's really important, you know, people support a team. They want to have, communicate. They want to hear what players thinking and saying so i think that is important to have some link there so I, I don't know the reason why they've gone down that route sorry you said questions mm, excellent yeah i'm just going to get to these um so first one we'll go for is freddie gavita he's saying how much of an impact does a manager actually have on the performance of a player compared to self-motivation and what i'd say for each of these um just keep your answers to about a minute yeah. Okay. Well, what I'd say is it it, 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 it just it, it's a, in a, it sounds like an invasive psychologist question response, and it says, but it's classic. It depends. It depends. Some some managers can have a huge impact on a player. Um, um, uh, I remember um, Brian Clough, who um, 
who I used to love listening to, and there are a lot of the psychological messages behind him. And he would say oh, that, yeah, Legend. he would say he would say that a manager can improve a team by ten percent, but a bad manager can decrease a team's performance by about thirty percent, which I think is 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 is, is quite I an interesting. I think that's so, great telling. And then what about you know, the players and, themselves? Players, and, and I would say it's very difficult. I've, 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 I've seen examples in in my experience, again, not football related, but where a, a player has self-motivation, drive, performance has astronomically improved through the relationship between the coach and them in terms of just being on the same wavelength, being supportive and whatever. And equally, I've seen players' careers be destroyed by poor relationships, really destroyed. Oh, no, absolutely. Because, um, you know, uh, non, non-selection, then um, making them train with kids. And, you know, it just it's almost like the coach is setting out to, to destroy them. Mm-hmm. No, um, and, and that that's the thing. It can be sometimes and you can, can have a positive and, effect, that, that the hard sort of bat. But, um, so, but more often than not, especially with more modern players, they're more sensitive. Yeah, I would say, for, you know, for, as I said earlier on in this, I think Fark will be drawing upon the, the established relationships he has with them in terms of this is knows what a player's tick and, and doing his utmost, even in these situations, to say, emphasising, okay, that this is what you're doing well, this is what I want to see from you. If you're not being selected, this is what you need to do to give yourself chance of selection and and being really, really clear on that. Um, mm-hmm. So, I... Um, it, 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 it there's there's no simple answer to that although it's a great question it's an it, i think it there's individual differences with that yeah fair enough now i've got something pretty much live or almost live from the press conference and sam seaman who produced today's show got this brought this my way i'm reading this from a, a tweet from corner southwell um where he's saying that there's there's an interesting question about whether Norwich City have sports psychologists, someone as interesting as me, with as good ideas editorially as me, you know. Um, <laughs> and Farka says, and I'd be interested in your opinion in this, Brian. Farka says, Norwich do give their players a chance to have those conversations, but ultimately it's the head coach who is most important when it comes to leadership. It's him that the players look to. And I don't disagree with that. But what I would ask you is, if it's not the club that are being proactive about using these sports psychologists, how does that usually work? Is it the players that seek you out? Is it uh, on an individual basis? The clubs sort of seek the likes of yourself out to do, I don't know, some work with a group? Or is it usually individuals specifically that come? My experience has been varied. Some of in a team, some of you, some of them only want you to work with individuals. Some of them want you to work with individuals and the team. Sometimes the coach just wants you to work with them. In terms of their communication style, their messages, helping them manage their stress or, 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 or the, the challenges of their job. Um, I've worked with, with, with teams as well where you you meet every individual and then thereafter it's self-selection. They can choose whether they want to work with you or not. Okay. I guess what's, what's coming out more I, I, and typically in football, which is in my experience has been... It was only really the sort of the advent of continental managers where psychology started to be used. It was certainly behind the times in terms of, you know, how Olympic sports in in Britain, in England, were using psychologists. Um, it's it, 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 
tends to be, in my experience, it tends to be self-selection. You see more footballers now coming out and um, publicly saying, I've been working with a psychologist and it's really, really helped with this or that. So it's, it, I think it's generally about, it, it, it can't be something that's forced. You know, if a player doesn't want yeah. to work with somebody, then, well, I'm not interested in working with them either. No, it's no, no, granted. So, but but what I, what I would say, and Fark said he's the, the sort of leader, is, is I'm absolutely behind that. I think whenever I've worked, I've worked with lots of national coaches um, um, in, in golf, uh, four national coaches, and you're part of their support staff. So you're yeah. trying to make sure that you're, the message you're delivering is 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 in line with theirs. Is it uh, less? And, and, and so that's that's a that's a that's a collaboration. So you're working with somebody to find out. Okay, with a coach, sometimes you're saying, "What are the messages you're trying to give here?" Or or trying to help them see what might be some blind spots. Or yeah. if you're hearing things or sensing things around, you say, well, "You know, well, well, I'd be, you know, I'd be emphasizing some of the things I've been saying now." Is, is, and they may be doing that, but I'll be, you know, let's not lose sight of this right now. But it would be that I say that the coach is always the leader. Yeah, and no, you're, no, no, there, you're, you're there. You're here. You're there to help and support them. And and I would say this, Stuart, as well, that the best coaches I've worked with are very psychologically minded. Yes, you know they're very, they're very. You know, you, you've talked about Ferguson, or we talked about Clough, or whatever. They're very. They they understand. Where they've not studied psychology, button. but they know. They know what players, how they think and how they behave, and what the influences are. And how to manage them, and the best, the best do that sometimes without even realising it. Yeah, no, exactly that, and it's probably the most important aspect I would say of a football manager's arsenal. And remember, and remember, it's saying is is sometimes I've said in my work is is I might say the same thing as somebody else, but it will have more impact coming from somebody else. So sometimes I might give a psychological message, and I might say to a coach, I think it's really important that you say this. Because it will have more impact coming from yeah. you than it will from me. That's that, that that's quite interesting. That I also think. So quickly, is it more common for like individual sportsmen to seek you out in a sport like golf? So even within a team setting where it's a more individual sport, is it more common for a golfer to come to you than a footballer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, golf is. Is is if you look at the the library of sports psychology books on golf. I mean, I've got one I bought at auction that dates back to 1923. You know, it's nearly 100 years old. That's brilliant. So there's something about golf that you you know typically they're on the course four and a half hours. You're only hitting the ball about 20 minutes. There's four hours of thinking time. Yeah, um, people yeah, who yeah. play golf read it. You know, you hear it. You hear commentators since the early 90s talking about players working with psychology. So it's part of the culture of the sport. Um, so it's, it, 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 you'd, it would be rare now, let's say on the European tour, where you find a player who is not working with a psychologist or has never worked with a psychologist. They, they change. It's a bit of a circus. They change. Um, tennis psychology has been it's sort of immer psychology has been immersed in the culture of tennis for, for many for many many years. Um, football, as I've said, has really sort of been behind the times but now you see with with academies and the the finance that goes into academies money is ring fenced for for psychologists within academies so players now 9 10 11 12 13 14, 15, they're growing up 
working with sports psychologists. Well, I can totally see why you would do that because so they, they if you, if you can young... get these messages through while brains are like a sponge, then yeah. that's that's going to be more beneficial in in the long term. See for senior established players though, I'm interested to know is there is there any kind of I don't know stigma attached yeah, to they, going to like they, a, a mental coach. Yeah, still still could be. I think again, individual differences. You'll get some senior players who are very circumspect and might hear you think, well, actually, you know, I'm pretty much, I'm you know, I'm, I'm in control of things. Some of the things you're saying, I sort of do already, and I might say hello to you and we'll get along. But actually, I'm not going to work. You know, I've had examples where. You know, my sense is, well, that, that's all right. Well, I'll, I'll chat about football with you. Who do you which football team do you support? <laughs> um, and But you, what you're trying to do is build a relationship where there's the opportunity that if they did feel they wanted to come to you at some date, they can. But, yeah, th- th- I think the idea of stigma now is, is, is radically changing because I've said now it's been in the sport and in the academies now. But I think... Um, there's a difference between some people have really strong working relationships with psychologists and others more sort of dipping here and there. And that's my yeah. experience is, you know, you know, I've had players, you know, you know, been introduced to them and it's two years later, they'll come up to you and they'll say, you know, well, you know, I wouldn't mind a little bit of chat about, about this or this. And so you're, you're, you're aware that you haven't working relation. I say working professional relationships vary across players, across sports, not necessarily, not necessarily stigma. Just some people just choose. You know, yeah, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm more of the kind of the the, the the almost sort of laddish culture that I'm sure still pervades in some dressing rooms. Yeah. Obviously, a lot less than 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 it used to. Maybe even three years ago, you know. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that it's one of those things that that that, that some sort of footballers, not all, of course, might look at and say, oh, what are you doing that for? Come on, man, you're responsible for your own performance, blah, blah, blah. Whereas I would hope that that's not the case in the Norwich dressing room, but I'm just wondering if with some sort of particularly older, more experienced senior pros might have that. And I would would think there's a lot more chance of that in an older player than there is in someone just coming through, you know? Yeah, I think, well, again, and I'm... It depends because sometimes you can get some. If you could get, if you get, if you had a a young player who was very, very self assured, almost a bit of cockiness about them, then you, of course, there's you know there'll be banter in football as in there is in any sport in any changing room. So yeah, you could get, um, you you could get some derogatory comments or a bit of Mickey taking or whatever. But but again, my experience has generally been now is that. People are looking, you know, professional sports people are, uh, are looking at ways that they can continually improve. And if they think a psychologist can help them, they make that choice. And and generally now, other people are respectful of that. If you do that because you think that's going to help you, help your performance, and, and in so doing the team, then I, then I'm then I'm all for that. In fact, mm. they're probably a bit fed up with you if you didn't seek support. If they felt it could help you, yeah, no, and I think that's fair. So well, if, you were, if, you were, if you were underperforming and 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 a, and a, a person felt you were lacking confidence and you were being doubt, there, and a psychologist was available, and you weren't, and, and 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 people who are like that who still don't choose to come because they they feel I'm more just, I know I'm going to work this out myself. 
and which is yeah that's 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 fine you know if they choose to and then and sometimes they do sometimes they do work through their own difficulties or they pull upon other people around them maybe their family they've got other support systems but generally it's i i, I find um you know coaches will push players you say you know when they're doing performance reviews and appraisals and things like that they'll say you know i think you you know get along and have a chat with get along and have a chat with in my case brian or they might say to you you know you know i'd like you to have a word and follow up with xyz because i think they're struggling a little bit at the moment or sometimes i found senior players will come up to you and say i'm a bit concerned about such and such will you have a word with him yeah so i think changing rooms now are are changing in terms yeah, of yeah, they're, yeah, much, they're much more aware of psychological impact and and put the pressures that people are under and you know we've seen changes in football now where the sort of initiation and and the sort of almost bullying culture has is been eradicated as being you know you just yeah don't do it's, that it's much more of a fun thing now like, yeah I mean, and so a player well, that we both get about is billy gilmer right uh, i don't know if you saw the clips of him doing karaoke in pre-season right. No, uh, but it seems a lot more fun. It's a lot less based on trying to shame a player, yeah, as, as yeah. make them feel part of the group, you know. Yeah, and and I, and so I think that the, the 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 role of psychology has been as has 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 become more accepted. I would say it would have been you know when I started in first started practicing uh, you know early nineties in a multitude of sports. There was a that's what the psychology the sports psychology literally was talking about was a was talking about stigma and getting past that that psychology meant problems because psychology mm -hmm. is also about as i've said at the start of this podcast is also about development and progression it's not necessarily i've got a problem when you start working with nine ten eleven twelve year olds youngest i've worked in golf was 10 and what you're trying to do is educate them about ways of thinking about yeah. ways of approaching things, just like we send kids to school when they're five. So it's not about necessarily, I think the stigma about psychology was, psychology was almost deemed in clinical terms that you go with somebody with a problem. And of course that does still exist and you have crises and whatever, but actually a lot of it is also about growth and, and ex exploration and ways of improving. And a, a lot of my conversations with players and, and drivers are about, growth and and about learning skills not about necessary i've got this presenting issue that i'm, I'm struggling with mm -hmm. and so i think my i imagine and i've said that this I, I would i would imagine from talking to colleagues who do work in football that it's 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 much more like that it's much more like that now but again a lot of it is the relationship that the psychologist can 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 develop with players in terms of credibility in terms of trust because if they think you're a bit of a chancer or if they think you don't know your stuff you won't get accepted and mm. no one will want to work with you yeah no i think that's fair i want to just quickly get back to the questions before we finish up and um, stephen pass has asked a great one he's asking how long can a group exist with an underdog mentality without turning that into a permanent sense of inferiority i think that's a great question yeah cool, that is a good one underdog mentality and inferiority 
So, like, the idea that you can be an yeah. underdog and use that to your advantage, but at what point does that flip and then become just an inferiority complex? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure about it becoming an inferiority complex, but I've worked with a team that what, what the, the media would have said overachieved. They punched above their weight for a number of years. They, the, the finance of the team wasn't as much as the bigger teams and yet they were winning trophies getting to finals they and they so in a sense they were over, felt they were overachieving and they were under it didn't really turn into an inferiority complex it more it was over time that's very difficult to sustain yeah because the finance of the bigger teams the quality of the players is is sport isn't just like anything else as as you keep performing against greater quality keep performing against greater quality in the end that shows up yeah and, no, it, and that's what yeah, we're okay. saying that when we're talking about stats on on who's finished in the top four all the time is you'll get the individual results and they'll have spells of form but actually over time the league tends to settle in this way i remember reading something earlier this year i think the research by transfer market wasn't it, in terms of spend and i don't know where norwich are in that now but you know, people think Leicester overachieve. Well, actually, they don't overachieve. They're one of the biggest spenders. Um, they might they might overachieve in relation to Tottenham and Arsenal, but actually, in terms of European clubs and spend, they're one of the biggest spenders in Europe. Hmm. So, you know, they're not really an underdog, and yet they, they not anymore. See, no, and but they 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 benefit from that idea of their sometimes punching above their weight so i don't it's a good question uh, steve but i don't I'm, I'm not sure about when it becomes an inferiority it's more yeah inferiority or, or sometimes just a sense of actually we're not good enough we're, we're not good enough results that, that, that's that we're not it's, good enough. It's, it's when it goes from you know what we can be the plucky underdogs that beat man city 3-2 a couple of years ago, to the team where you're actually thinking we're going into games with a sense of trepidation because we've we've not won in a while, you know. Yeah, and, so I, and, I, and I think I think that will be, you know, that, that will be what's the coaching staff at Norwich will be very difficult to maintain if it's a real slog of a season, and the the momentum continues. Of course, that that happens, and sometimes then it will be about bringing in new faces, trying to shake things up in some way. Because well, well, what that, that does, Stuart, is then it it will help players feel that something has changed, which might bring success. If you yeah. keep doing the same thing over and over again, and it's the same selection, it's the same team, and then then it becomes much more of a feeling of we're just not good enough. Yeah. So somehow it's about keeping things consistent, but also changing things which bring optimism or hope. No, granted, and I think that's I, I think that's such an interesting one. Is I, I think that I think if it does continue in a, a negative momentum trajectory, um, there's a bit of word bingo. Um, but if it continues in that kind of trajectory, there will come a point where, regardless of 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 anything, I mean, it basically then becomes a question of what what do you change to try and instigate. Yeah. No actual change on the field, you know, in terms of the on-field fortunes. So and I it'll think be, it'll be it'll be like the January transfer window, and can they bring you know 
fresh faces in and people that might change the dynamic or add quality to certain areas of the team where they feel that's going to be. And that can give players a sense of, yeah, we've got something new here. Then again, um, my argument would have been that pretty much we did that during the summer. Yeah, so yeah. you would look at that and you would say, then that should maybe already have happened. I've got one more to throw at you. It's from Chris Cherry. Um, and yeah, I love this. He says, can Brian dispel the myth that some players cannot play in front of their own fans? And I think he's saying that with his tongue in his cheek, but I actually think it's a legitimate question. Yeah. Um, I think it's right. Sometimes players... The the away fixtures. There's a, there's a reason. First of all, there's a lot of research, for example, on home advantage in sports psych in terms of mm-hmm. not purely what's the statistics in terms of home or away wins. Because we saw last year with the Premier League with no crowds, there was a massive shift in terms of um, towards away wins. Um, so that we we know that 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 home advantage brings certain things in terms of familiarity, in terms of pitch dimensions. And obviously home support. So what makes away fixtures more difficult is the opposite of that. Unfamiliarity, travel, um, uh, pitch dimensions, the, the surface of the pitch, you know, how how sometimes the, the ground staff prepare pitches that better suit home teams in terms of watering and so on. Um, so another thing is about uh, performing in hostile environments that 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 in terms of support, supporters again, that, that's that's another factor in terms of adding to home advantage. My experience yeah. was, was with home is generally home advantage is you feel a sense of, uh, su- uh, of support, that I'm in a supportive environment. And generally that's very conducive to performance. But of course, you'll obviously get players who sometimes struggle if you if they feel that the home support are really picking them out or booing them uh, or, or an air of hostility. Of course, I think that can be really harmful in terms of um, you just think just think on a human level to have criticism and a lack of support who you think who you in your own mind perceive of people who should be supporting me, then then my experience of, of, of a few people I've worked with is, is that can mm-hmm. be a really, really harsh environment, harsh environment to try and go out and perform in. Yeah, no. I, I think... You know, they, there's hesitancy. They don't want the ball. They're, they're nervous when they receive the ball. And, and of course, the, 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 that, that, that nervous, the, 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 the crowd can transmit that too. They can, and and the, but the thing is, all of these things coexist. So if Norwich City had surprisingly won the first game of the season, they'd probably have more than those three points by now because that momentum, the positive momentum, would be there. The, the problem with the negative momentum, and by the way, can you tell I love the terminology? I'm probably going to drop it into chats from now until kingdom come. Uh, I think with the negative momentum, the problem is that then begins to stagnate. And it's the difference between Brentford going and winning in the opening day. But again, first season in the Premier League, nothing to lose. Absolutely nothing Mm. to lose. No expectations, really. So they can go out there. Whereas Norwich City, although expectations were probably lower than a lot of other clubs, and there was an Mm. understanding that it was a difficult start, I think that's why there was so much disillusionment after the Watford game. 
And I think that's yeah. where we now sit in a situation where Norwich City need to be really careful not to let negativity just start pervading through the entire football club. Fans, training ground, dressing room, the lot, you know? Yeah. So that's the that's the key bit here. And it, it does feel like a crunch time in Daniel Farker's tenure. Would you concur with that? Yeah. I, I, I You know, I was talking about my um, elder brother as a Crystal Palace season ticket holder. I go into games. And what, one thing we've always talked about as football supporters, and he's he knows what job I do and something, he said, you know, it's the thing with fixtures. Is 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 you he, he's gone year on year and he said, you know, you, you start to realise it's it's not just the fixtures, it's when you play them. It's when you play, you've got, you've got no control over that, but when you play opposition and, you know, what state of form the other team are in and whether they've got injuries. And, uh, you know, and I, again, so I think it brings it back to the, the start Norwich have had and we, we, we've term, used the term momentum is, I think they have a really tough first set of fixtures and it, it they got dealt a hand at the start of the season where they're playing teams where um yeah not difficult. a great not, not a great time to play them no no um, no definitely difficult but at the same time not an exoneration for yeah. but, I, but I, I think you're right and i think um interesting he said he didn't particularly like roy hodgson's um he felt Sometimes Roy Hodgson, as a Crystal Palace manager, was very hesitant in terms of substitution. But he said he he was you could see from his coaching experience he knew how to get the best out of what he had available and to set a team up in a way that they were difficult to beat. He said it wasn't good to watch, but he said it maintained Crystal Palace's Premier League status. And he went with very old, experienced players. And you can see this year they're trying to do that desperate transition now to have a sort of a younger squad. And you can see teams in the past. That have done that in the Premier League, and then when they've tried to change, they've they've fallen very quickly. But his his to come back to Fark, he was he was saying that Hodgson, even when Palace went on games where they'd lose four or five games in a row, he said you always believed that Hodgson behind the scenes would be relatively calm, yeah, and would still focus on okay, that's going this is going to happen in the Premier League. You're going to lose runs of games because we're at that level. But what have we got to do in this game? And he'd say he almost got a sense of that experience was then that Hodgson wasn't wouldn't panic, and, and yeah. that's the test against for Fark is. is I, I don't I don't think he will panic, you know, but I, I do see more evidence of the emotional toll on him, uh, and that's that's something interesting from a guy who has been yeah. as suave as they come since he walked into the club four and a bit years ago. So I, I think that's that, that's going to be an interesting one. Yeah, and you're, watch you know, as a, you know as, a, as an avid follower of them um, in terms of your job and the, and the team, you're, you're, you're more aware of maybe that emotive in, and, and, and seeing a strain on somebody that, you know, hopefully he's, you know, hopefully he's got support behind the scenes that are helping. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Stuart Webber's right behind him, and it's, it's, it's his call and, at the end of the day. But what I would say is that is just my take on it. It's always just my take. It's Hodge on Nodge. It's only my take. No worries. <laughs> no worries. Um, I've, I've got one I want to throw at you just, just generally before we go, and that is obviously on, a Chelsea fan, Norwich fan. How good yeah, is Billy go Gilmer? How well, good is he? 
I think he's very, very good. Um, will he break through at Chelsea? It's very difficult to say. Um, I went so to tough. another. I went to another game just to say. Um, I went to another game uh, with a, a friend of mine who's a Pompey fan. I went to MK Don's um, Pompey uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there was a player playing for MK Don's called Josh McCreckran. Yes, and, and I remember Chelsea him. Kid. Remember him coming through at Chelsea, and he was the next big thing. And he was raging about him. He, he came through all the England age groups, blah, blah, blah. and he's ended up. He didn't. He didn't. You know, didn't fulfil that bit, promise, but, but of a, a, Billy Gilmore's going to have a better career than him. I'm pretty. And sure. I and I think Billy Gilmore is a better player, yeah. and I think he's already achieved more than McEachran did. But absolutely. With with Chelsea, it's always the the, the, the calibre of the players that they buy because there's always that instant success. Is the concern for Gilmore will be, as a Chelsea fan, is is will he ever really get the chance to establish himself as a Chelsea player? Will he have to go somewhere else to get as he's doing now loan? But beyond that, will he have to go somewhere to really develop? Because I think you've as a player, like you've, you've got you've got to be playing at that level to. To develop and improve, you don't just do that in training. I think there's yeah. Chelsea players, Barkley, particularly Ruben Loftus Cheek, is you know, he's now in his mid 20s and he was playing for England a few years ago. But you, you sort of feel, well, actually, you'd be better off somewhere else. No, um, I agree. And then, you've but got no, I really hope a Mason Mount who has managed to make the transition. So, yeah, I, no, I hope Gilmore comes through. I'm glad he's playing at Norwich. Um, I, I really hope Norwich have a really good year. I hope they stay up, but unfortunately, I hope Chelsea <laughs> turn them over in the two games they play against them. But, um, <laughs> I, th I think um, Chelsea will be battling for the title, mate. So I can understand why you would want those points. Just um, yes or no answer: Are Norwich City going to turn it around and stay up? I'm going to go. Um, I'm going to go. Yes, just about. Good man. Right, that's fine. Ju just about kind of sitting in the fence, but we're going to go with the yes. No, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, yeah. I'm going to say fourth bottom. Fourth bottom, squeaking yes. through maybe in the final day. Excellent. Yeah, it will go right to the wire. Yeah, no, no, no. I think, I think already by this point we would take that, we we would snatch that from you, um, <laughs> given the given the disappointing start to the season. Brian, if people want to find your work, mate, then where can they find you? Uh, well, as I said, most of my um, reputation is in golf. So I've got a website, GolfMind, www.golfmind.co.uk. It's obviously going to be a lot about golf, but there's a bit of a profile in there in terms of some of the work I've done. Um, yeah. Uh, Do you think Europe you... are going to win the Ryder Cup, by the way? Uh, well, we talked about home advantage. Um, home advantage in the Ryder Cup now is massive in terms of how they yeah. set up the course. I think it will be close, but actually I think USA will win it. I think so. I think that USA team is as good as they've had in a long time they, in terms but, of strength and depth. But the, the one thing is, is, is you um, there's massive difference in terms of world rankings, and Europe have gone for a lot of experience. What I do know professionally is stroke play, and what you get chosen for for Ryder Cup. Match play is a very, very different. It's almost like a different sport. Absolutely, and, it is. Uh, if you listen to Poulter, for example, talk about match play, you can see that he approaches that a very, very different way and his level of confidence in his match play. So it's almost world rankings, you know, on paper. They're massively ahead of uh, of, of Europe, but 
but rankings don't. No, based on show play. I, but I would say I, I'm going for America really because of of, of home advantage. Yeah, I can see that. I would also say with, with Porter specifically, I mean, we're talking about characters and dressing rooms, right? I mean, absolutely massive for that for that European team. And, and like, I would imagine I'd be massively surprised if he wasn't Ryder Cup captain one day, you know? Like, um, yeah. I, think, I think it's, I think it's one of my favourite events, mate, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And it's, I just find it funny that we've had this conversation on the day it starts. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I hope. I hope you're at win because obviously I'm, I know some of the players involved um, um, and want them to be successful. I, 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 I just think in terms of the home advantage, although the course they're playing on, you know, it's it's um, if the wind blows up from the from the lake that, that they've um, it, it might be um, more conducive to, uh, to 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 Europe in terms of the, the weather conditions and playing in the wind might actually might actually help the Europeans. But, um, yeah, can I imagine there'll be more than a couple of points in it? Can I imagine there'll be more than a couple of points and I think it's going to be tight as well. Um, well, listen, Brian, thank you very much. So thank you to yourself, Brian Hemmings. Thank you to everyone who's back watching. By the way, if you wondered why I'm away, um, uh, there was a bit of an incident happened when I was down in London where I was the victim of an assault. And you can see there, that's it still... Um, healing, so that's why and obviously with my wee pretty face I didn't want to come on while it was all swollen up and I had an eye like boy George, so I thought it was better to avoid it, but um, Brian thank you very much for joining us mate, no I hope worries. you enjoy the golf this weekend, um, to all of the people all my loyal Hodge on Nodge listeners, if you're listening to the podcast after the um, live stream here and to anyone who's watching as well, thank you very much thank you for everyone who got in touch with questions didn't quite get round to them all, but got round to most of them, so thanks for that uh, at 3pm, which is now only an hour away, because this has been a marathon podcast that we've had today, so thank you again Brian for um, the amount of time you've allotted today, but at 3pm I'll be on a Twitter space an NCFC social Twitter space with Michael Bailey which will be happening, technology permitting, every Friday now uh, or well, every Friday when we've got a game at the weekend, and then we'll be doing a post-match space around an hour after the full-time whistle for Saturday 3pm kickoffs and probably some other ones over the course of the season, which will give people a chance to react and and basically just canary call, but for a, a kind of different audience. So if you're not on Twitter, you don't have me on Twitter, you can find me on there and on every other social media at Hodgie the Hack. On YouTube, I would say that you can, well, I would be really grateful, in fact, if you could subscribe because that will get me closer to the 1,000 subscriber mark which is very much a milestone on YouTube. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, then please do share the video, share the pod, share all the links and tweets that I'm putting out. All of that sort of contributes to more and more people enjoying the content, and that's what makes it worthwhile for me to do it. So thank you very much to everyone who has watched and listened. Thank you to yourself, Brian. Uh, I hope you, I hope the weather stays like that for you while you watch the so, golf. Looks ideal, mate. So do I. And just to finish as well... Um... All the best to Norwich for this year and I hope you keep continuing to support your team. Do your bit, like Daniel Fox said, and hopefully that will help towards the success of the team. You heard it, Carrow Road. I'm up in Scotland, so I can't do anything about it. But for any home games, we need that 12th man more than ever. But thank you very much, everyone. Cheers to you all. Thanks for your patience waiting for this episode. And as ever, on the ball, City. <laughs>